You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AHA. This episode of The Cutting Edge is all about Yahafuskan, Mount Robeson, the highest peak in the Canadian Rockies. On the last day of September, Ethan Berman and Houston Hawthorne started up a new route on the mountain's emperor face. Late the next day, they reached the top of Robson. It was the first new route to the summit since 2002, and the pair did it in superb style, walking all the way in and out from the mountain. I'll be talking with both Ethan and Houston in the second part of this show. But first, I thought it would be cool to check in with Barry Blanchard who has climbed Yahahuskin a dozen times, almost always while working as a mountain guide. One of the times he summited without clients was when, after many attempts, he finally completed the route called Infinite Patience up the Emperor Face back in 2002. This route has become the only line on the Emperor Face that might be called popular, meaning it gets climbed once every few years. I wanted Barry to describe the allure of this great peak and what makes it so special to Canadian climbers. All right. Uh, welcome to the show, and thanks for helping us understand more about this uh, incredible mountain. Oh, well, my pleasure, and thanks for having me, Dougald. It's, uh, we've uh, chatted and wrote back and forth for a number of decades now, so good to <laughs> be doing it again. Let's let's start by talking about the name. Uh, you know, most climbers know this mountain is Robson, yet obviously there must have been an indigenous name given much earlier. Uh, what indigenous name does it generally go by? Yahahuskan, which means uh, the mountain of the spiral road. And to really understand the name, if you stand at the Robson River below the west side of Robson, the strata, you know, on the higher part of the mountain is just so blatantly visible and inclined. And the Shushwap believe that there was a road that spiraled to the top of the mountain. And I will also add in there that when you're standing at the Robson River, you're looking at 10,000 feet of relief. So it's a big mountain, equal in scale to Everest. As you and I know, Everest goes higher in the atmosphere because it starts at 18,000 feet. But Robson at the Fraser River is 3,000. It goes up to 13,000. So it's a it's a big mountain. And, it, and it's visible from, well, now the road, but it would have been invisible to these uh, the early people in that area. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know... Uh, Native North Americans, um, I'm sure they've been migrating and, you know, making their living and traveling through that valley for 10,000 years. Uh, you know, maybe 13,000 seems to get uh, earlier evidence of um, Native, you know, humans being in uh, North America all the time. Mm-hmm. And the 
emperor face, which we're going to be talking about a lot today, and the Emperor Ridge. How did they get their names? You know, that's a good question. I don't know if I have that one at my fingertips. I would suspect Emperor because Robson is the king of the Rockies. It's the highest peak in the Canadian Rockies. So I would suspect that Emperor is a spinoff of King, but that's that's kind of a guess. Um, huh. Is it is it a, is it sort of generally known as the King of the Rockies, or is that an old name? Or? It is an old name. When uh, Conrad Kane guided the second ascent of Robson during the Alpine Club of Canada's annual General Mountaineering Camp in 1924, I will first point out that he rode a horse to Kinney Lake and then guided the mountain four times in two weeks and went up, you know, about 9,000 feet up and 9,000 feet down four times in two weeks. The physicality (laughs) of it for a modern guide is, you know, it's hard to comprehend. And combined with that, that he bivouacked on the glacier the first three times, he didn't make it back down to the high bivouac. And one of those ascents was with Phyllis Monday and, uh-huh. uh, of, of uh, Waddington Mystery Mountain fame. And uh, when they got to the top, Kane said to Phyllis Monday, you know, you are uh, the first woman on top of Mr. Robson and uh, the king. So <laughs> I think even back in 1924, that might have, I don't know, it's an interesting quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, uh, what year was that, that Kane? The first ascent of Robson, I think, was 1913, but this was the the second, third, fourth, and fifth time he climbed the mountain, which was 1924 during the Alpine Club of Canada's annual general mountaineering camp. Right. Well, so you mentioned, you know, that it rises this incredible vertical gain, and and you mentioned a little of the early history. What what else is it that makes Robson so? unique and special in Canadian climbing history and, and culture? I mean, why is it such a standout mountain? Well, it uh, is is fairly far north in the range. And I think it is, it's a really difficult mountain to see until they put the railroad through there. So it existed, you know, for a long time, as we always say, off the, in the white space of the map, off the, the edge of uh, the map. And therefore, kind of off the edge of our consciousness. And uh, it's interesting that uh, Reverend Kinney, on his first attempt at Robson, rode a horse from Morley, Alberta, which is in between Calgary and Canmore, where the Nestonia Nakoda nation is. He was on horseback for two months before he even saw them out. So it was on the northern edge of, you know, what we could picture of the Canadian Rockies and even into my kind of, uh, time as a mountaineer, Robson was the North. I don't really know a lot about the Rockies North of Robson. And for the longest time, that was the kind of outpost of my knowledge. And Robson itself was a very mysterious mountain to me because I couldn't drive to it and see it as frequently as I could Temple or Howe's Peak or Athabasca or Andromeda or, you know, a lot of the other high mountains in the central Rockies. How far is it from Canmore, kind of the center of Rockies climbing? Uh, It's a good, uh, healthy three and a half to four hours north. Basically, you've got to go to Lake Louise, then to Jasper, and then about an hour north of Jasper on the Yellowhead uh, Highway. 
for me, you know, I was not fortunate enough to even see the mountain the first time we went in to try it in 1983 and got uh, weathered off. And I can't really remember the first time I saw the mountain. I mentioned that because I was on a panel about, I think, I don't know, we were talking about mountain photography at the Banff Film Festival. And uh, someone had asked the question about, you know, how do you get a good shot of Mount Robson? And, you know, Pat Morrow and Paul Ziska are about to answer. And I just had to blurt out, anytime you can see Mount Robson <laughs> is a great time to get a picture of Mount Robson. Hmm. Because there's a lot of people who will drive by that mountain half a dozen, dozen times over, you know, decades and never actually see the mountain. So just because of the weather and cloud cover. Yeah, it creates its own um, weather pattern because it is so high. And, uh, you know, the, the, you, you mentioned the Emperor Ridge, the gargoyles of the Emperor Ridge, these rhyme formations that are up to 80 feet high. Wow. You just don't see them on any other peak in the Rockies. They're absolutely unique to Robson. And so likewise is the hemlock forest, hemlock and cedar forest that exists in that lee of the mountain that stretches towards the the Fraser. You know, the next uh, uh, cedar and hemlock forest is 100 kilometers to the west because it's just not wet enough, you know, in a lot of the other parts of uh, the Rockies to have that kind of forest standing. So weather is one of the big difficulties. Uh, You know, what else makes it? a hard mountain to climb. Um, I mean, I, I gather that, you know, there are years where it hardly gets climbed at all. Yeah. Yvonne, uh, Chouinard had a good quote of that in that to get to the top of Robson by any route is the kind of solid distinction or marker of a good intermediate mountaineer. Hmm. And it's true. There's, there's no easy way up the mountain and any way you go, there's going to be a fair amount of complicated glacier travel uh, yeah, and a fair amount of route finding and navigation. And the easier routes traditionally involved a 23-mile hike to the backside of the mountain to get at the cane, the mm-hmm. cane face. Now people are doing that by the Patterson Spur. Um, so, you know, that, that, that walk has been cut down maybe in half, but still a lot of work to get to the top of Robson. Yeah, for sure. When, when did you first climb it? The first time I climbed Robson would have been as a guide, and that would have been in the uh, probably mid-80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I'd have to look back at my guide's books, but I'm pretty sure I've been on top of the mountain a dozen times. And uh, 12 or 11 or 10 of those times would have been as a guide. A right. couple of times would have been as a uh, a recreational amateur mountaineer. Is that true? Maybe only once as a recreational amateur mountaineer <laughs> and the 11 other times as a guide. <laughs> right. And that one time was you're climbing the emperor face, right? On infinite patience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Aptly named route because the first time we went in to try infinite patience was in 1989 in the winter time, Ward Robinson and Jim, Jim Alzinga and I, and uh, when we kicked the blocks out of our snow cave below the face the second day, it was minus 40, which is the same on the Celsius and Fahrenheit right. scale. <laughs> so it's pretty darn cold. And uh, we ended up soloing the North Face together because we could keep moving and not get frostbitten. So, yeah, no, I, I, I lie. I, I, two times as a recreational mountaineer, <laughs> I stood on top of Robinson. But after it, you go, go ahead. 
please. Well, I mean, how many times did you end up climbing, uh, attempting the route that became Infinite Patience? Well, it sat in the back of my mind um, from 89 right through to 97 when I started climbing. It was the first time I climbed with Steve House. And uh, Steve came up and joined Joe Josephson and I for what would become our annual attempt and failure to climb Mount Robson. And uh, one of the lessons we learned in 89 was March was just too cold. So we shifted our attention to April. And uh, it was quite funny. That first year, we made it really high. And there's a story about Steve dropping the plunger to the stove and us having to come down after a 22-hour valiant uh, gain of height and attempt. But uh, for the next uh, decade, you know, we every April we'd set out to climb uh, the Emperor Face Mount Robson. Some years we wouldn't even get there because of weather forecasts, but other years, you know, we would uh, get up to our high point. I think in two thousand and two, yeah, it wasn't until two thousand, or I mean, year two thousand, we got up to our high point of ninety seven, and then two thousand and two just came together for me to go in there in the fall in October with Philippe Pelle and Eric Dumarac who named the route Infinite Patience because I had been <laughs> so patient trying to get up that route. <laughs> yeah, and on and on a couple of those temps, if I read if I remember right, you climbed basically as far as the Emperor Ridge, right? The route that had been already climbed. Yeah, that's that's correct. Our 97 attempt when we dropped the plunger to the stove and had to come down and then our 2000 attempt um when the weather just you know, went to hell in a handbag, so we had to come down. Right. Now, some people might, on a, on, a, on a face like this, you know, climb to the ridge and then descend from there and call it a new route. But clearly, you, you weren't going to consider it done until you went all, all the way to the summit. Why, why was that so important to you? You know, we'd uh, dreamt about that. And uh, just to climb through some of the gargoyles and experience the upper part of the mountain, and really, when you top out the new terrain on Infinite Patience, you're only halfway up Robson. Hmm. Like literally, if you take out a ruler and measure, you're halfway there. So there's still a half of the mountain above you. So yeah, we just could you know, never say that we had accomplished a new route. Although we had done that on other mountains where we hit the ridgeline. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, not with, not with half the mountain above you. And, and you know, for the what became infinite patience and has been repeated a half dozen times now. I'm so happy that we did because the upper part of the part of the mountain is just, it's a pretty magical place. And to actually take the spiral road, you know, we traverse beneath the gargoyles and to, you know, use the path of the shoe swap to get to the top of the peak. It's, uh, I don't know resonates in in my bloodline so nice yeah and so were you pleased and sort of excited to hear about this new line up the emperor face and kind of climbed in a classical style they walked into the mountain and then went to the top traversed over and walked out the other side is it, it seems like sort of the 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 dream style for doing a route like that yeah, yeah, and, and definitely an improvement on our style. The first ascent of Infinite Patient, which we got out of the helicopter at Berg Lake and then got <laughs> back into the helicopter at the Forester Hut. So we definitely took advantage of uh, 
you know, one of the few places in the Rockies that we can take advantage of modern transportation. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think it's brilliant. Um, I, I think it's just uh, incredible. And uh, the increase in physicality, I can really, really appreciate. And uh, I know used in from uh, the last year, and it's just uh, so cool to see him, you know, come to Canada and dedicate a year or two of his life to discovering Rockies and see how well he's climbing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, applaud the point, you know, where he's taken his alpinism and I'm sure there's more fabulous things to come from, from that young man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I was surprised. I, I pulled out my copy of your book, the calling and, and was surprised to see that infinite patience and rubs and weren't in there. But then I, I realized that, that book is basically mostly about your earlier climbing career, but you have a new book coming out, right? I do. Yeah. Thus far, for lack of a better title called The Calling Two, which is a working <laughs> title, there's been some good uh, rec- you know, you know, recommendations like The Recall, um, The Answer, The Echo. There's <laughs> uh, a lot of good ones, but uh, we'll see what it becomes titled. And uh, yeah, with COVID... Um, coming on it's set to be published in the fall of uh, 2022 yeah yeah, and and will your uh will your efforts on uh, rubson be included in the calling too uh very much so yeah yeah whole you know chapter and build up to finally succeeding on the emperor face great well i really look forward to that and um barry thank you so much for uh spending a few minutes talking about this mountain yeah, my pleasure. Um, love to talk about Robson and look forward to the uh, podcast when it uh, gets produced. Welcome to the show, Ethan and Ustin. Why don't you each introduce yourselves and tell us where you're from? Um, okay. Hi, my name's Ethan Berman. Um, the second part of the question is a little tricky. I'm I'm American. I was born in New Delhi, India, and kind of spent my childhood between the Boston area and India um, until I was finished with high school. And I've been living for the last four years, more or less, in Western Canada, splitting my time between Squamish and Canmore, um, kind of Squamish in the summers and Canmore in the winters. And yeah, just trying to follow the seasons and get in as much climbing as I can. But wait, how is it that you're able, as an American, how are you able to travel back and forth uh, to Canada right now with COVID? So I, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> I, um, I went to grad school in Vancouver, which is why I originally moved to Canada. And so Canada has really good immigration policies for, for graduates of Canadian universities. And so Although there is a quote-unquote border closure between the U.S. and Canada, I was able to travel to the U.S. where I'm currently visiting. Um, because I'm a U.S. citizen, I'm allowed to cross the border. And Canada is much stricter, but because I have a work permit in Canada, I'm able to hopefully return to Canada in about a month. <laughs> but we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> I'm Eustin Hawthorne. I'm from Scotland. And uh, yeah, I grew up. Grew up in the sort of far flung corners of it, and 
And then a year ago, I moved to Canada for just on like a two-year working visa just to um, take advantage of all the good things there are to do out here. So, Right. Now, Ethan, I understand you're the one who spotted the the line that we're talking about today. How, how did that come about? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I've kind of been living in Western Canada for about four years now. So, you know, starting to climb more and more in the Canadian Rockies and kind of immerse myself in the history. Of course, Mount Robson is kind of included in everything you hear and read about, especially the emperor face when it comes to this kind of alpine climbing. So I was always keen to first off, just get out there and see it. Um, and second off, of course, think about trying to climb it. And so I was at the time doing grad school work in Northern Alberta or um, in and around Jasper. Um, and so I just ended up hiking in there. It's it's a well-known um, hiking and, and uh, backpacking destination as well with Berg Lake being the, the really beautiful glacier-fed lake right below the emperor face. And so I just ended up hiking in there one fall um, on one of these work trips. And it was kind of one of these really cold and windy, crisp fall days. And the face was just blowing wind like crazy over the top. You could just see it. And it just looked so crazy and scary and intimidating, but also shimmering um, in the, in the, in kind of the afternoon light. And I, yeah, I just kind of looked up and I was like, okay, that's where, infinite patience goes and there's all this all these legendary roots on the left side of the face that are kind of convoluted and I just saw this this gully line going kind of straight up the middle right hand side of the face and it really instantly just caught my eye because it looked like such an such an obvious feature and also something that would would um promote itself well to kind of moving quickly up and through it and so I I took a lot of good photos and kind of kept it in the back of my mind as something that I would, I would possibly consider in the next few years if I could, if I could make it happen and probably get a little bit more Alpine experience in the Canadian Rockies under my belt first, since it's known for, for being such a unique place to climb. Yeah. I mean, it's a really strong line and and basically independent of other climbs once the real climbing begins. And you said it, as you said, it looks pretty obvious. I mean, why do you think it hadn't been done before? Um, we, well, we've already joked about this. I mean, because it's the Canadian Rockies and, you know, there's only a handful of people who are really coming and attempting these lines. And there's also a joke that it's, it's oftentimes foreigners who are, who are coming and getting some of these things done. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say. I just think there's not that many people who have been out there and who have really, really scoped it out and looked at things, at least in more contemporary times. Um, and I think since Infinite Patience was climbed in either 2002 or 2003, it's really easy to go climb that route because where it is on the face and what it has above it and what the terrain is like, it's just, it's a much safer option in, in a lot of ways. And we were even having the discussion at the base that it would, it would always be easier for us to just go climb that instead. Um, but I'm pretty happy that we were able to kind of make the decision that we did and kind of go for this other line. And your line is basically the first route to the left of infinite patience. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. There's this big prominent rock buttress slash rib between the two. Um, but it's the next kind of logical gully system. Yes. I didn't know this till I read the Alpinist article that just came out online, I think today. 
And but you had, you tried this once before, or at least walked in to try it before. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I had actually been in there with another friend of ours, um, Peter Huang, um, in June, and kind of following the information or what I had what I had read and heard about um, John Wallace and Jason Crux's ascent of the face. We we went in there just around the summer solstice, which is it was the middle of June, which is the time of year that they climbed their route. Was that this year? That was this year, yes, that we were in there. Yeah, okay. Um, and so it had been a big a big snow year in the Rockies. Um, and of course, it was looking pretty warm in June, but it kind of, there was this long stretch of good weather. And I, and I thought, you know, you really don't know until you, till you walk back there. And it just seemed like a good opportunity to maybe try and climb, but at least get some information. So the emperor face actually face, it's not, doesn't face due north. It's more like a northwest facing aspect. And so at that time of year, being so far north, it was actually getting quite a lot of morning and evening sun. And so it was one, it was one of these times where you, where, you know, we went out there and we had a discussion about what things looked like, but it was actually quite obvious that the face was going to be out of condition for us just, just due to the, due to the sheer amount of snow and just the sun and, and the solar effect that it was getting and in kind of the scale of the terrain. Um, and in the Rockies, you're often in these big gully features, which, which funnel a lot of, a lot of things above. So it, it was an obvious choice that we, that we went out there and we, we bivied at the base and we didn't end up climbing. We just walked out the next day. Um, but it also kind of secured this idea that, Hey, you know, the emperor face often gets really dry throughout the summer, but given the sheer amount of snow that I saw up there, it could be in really good condition this fall, just because a lot of that snow and ice, at least on the upper face would still be there. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned walking in, uh, let's talk a little bit about the setting for this, for the emperor face and the approach. I mean, you guys walked in, not helicoptered, right? Yes, we walked in. Yeah. <laughs> what 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 is the, what is the approach like? Is it a is it a brutal walk in or is it not too bad? Um, I don't think it's too bad. It's 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 like I don't know. It took us four hours or something of walking time to walk in. Which with a big bag, it feels it's tiring, but it's a really good trail. It's a very popular hiking trail. So in the grand scheme of things, it's it's not that far and it's pretty straightforward. But uh, I read it was raining on the way in. Right, that must have been daunting. Yeah, I suppose like it started raining and it and it got heavier and heavier and then we like sat under this tree and sort of waited for it to 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 ease off and and drank some coffee and then obviously started discussing things like whether we should be there or not but anyway we just sort of waited it out and it dried up a little bit but it was still cloudy so then we like we just carried on and walked to the where we bivied at the lake and like it was kind of funny cuz I just hadn't seen the mountain and Ethan was like, yeah, there's a huge mountain there. But like, I was just like, well, I can't see it. So <laughs> do you bivy right at the lake? Yeah, pr pretty much just across the river. Like, yeah, kind of at the toe of the mist glacier and like the, what would be like the mist lake or something just up from, up from Berg Lake. Um, right. Yeah. And it, I mean, it is about, it's like 20 kilometers, about 12 miles and six or 700 meters elevation gain. And so with a big pack, I mean, the day before you're supposed to start this, this big climb, I mean, you, you definitely do feel it in your legs. Um, but did you have a, did you have a good forecast? I mean, you must've had a forecast or you wouldn't be up there, but, um, 
Were you surprised by the sort of poor weather walking in? We had a good forecast and we did see that there was going to be a bit of light precip that day. And it was kind of, it didn't feel stormy. It was more just like we were socked in in this cloud, but it, it definitely gave us a little bit of hesitation as to whether things would be well consolidated or well frozen or what it was doing higher on the mountain. Mm -hmm. Um, But it did, it did clear out um, in the evening and night as we were expecting it to do. Did you eventually find out that it, did it snow a lot up high that night or just rain or did not really even? Yeah, it seemed like it didn't do too much. Um, We were actually surprised because there was a big, we were also a little hesitant because there was a big storm system that had come the week before. Um, But we actually found, we didn't find a lot of fresh snow kind of anywhere on the mountain because I think everything lower down had already melted off and then everything higher up had just either consolidated or had been blown around. So really we weren't, we at no point were worried about any sort of avalanche conditions, which was a little bit surprising and definitely kind of a nice situation to be in. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, well, let's talk about the climb. It seems like a lot of the emperor face routes, uh, you know, from reading about them over the years, it seems like they have like a whole bunch of moderate climbing and then a few really desperate crux pitches. Was that also the case with your route? Yeah, like you say, the first sort of like quarter or third of the face is is pretty easy. Um, and it was reasonably dry, so it's quite kind of, um, involves a fair bit of just like soloing up loose, easy choss, as is common in the Rockies. But then you sort of get into the system and we found like really good sort of neve and so- some steeper ice for or maybe three or 400 meters before we hit like a steeper band, um, which had some harder climbing. It was really cool. It was sort of like traversing on sort of like slopey ledges and it just had like blobs of neve stuck everywhere. And uh, yeah, it really reminded me of like kind of of home and, and uh, it was a really, really good pitch that one. And they sort of, that just sort of continues this theme of sort of like, an easier band of neve and then you hit sort of like a steep band again after that were you um pitching all of this out or alternating you know moving together or um so from where we started sort of roped up from like after the sort of easy ground we mostly did sort of like pitching it out with a bit of moving together in the easier sections yeah so so sort of, you know, sometimes we would maybe link two rope lengths together or three rope lengths together on the easier sections, but any of the steeper stuff, we were just pitching it kind mm-hmm. of in the normal standard way. So you get to these steep bands and you just described one of them. Uh, and then Ethan, you took over for another steep pitch. Yeah. I, I, I also just wanted to know we were, so the photos that I had taken that fall when I thought that it was, wow, this like looks in really good condition. We, we laugh about it now because it just, we don't think it would have went in the same style because it just wasn't iced up enough. And, and like these kind of blobby kind of steeper pitches that Ushin is describing, we were just like, this, this would be totally desperate climbing if all this ice wasn't here. Um, so I think we really, we really lucked out in the, on the conditions that we found. So I kind of took over at what looked to be just kind of another one of these steep, blobby ice pitches that would lead us up through the rock band but at that i found out that the ice was sort of 
in that section, maybe it was a little bit too steep and it was kind of delaminating and just not really supportive enough to commit to. Um, and I tried a few different ways and was, we had all this momentum going as you do after you've climbed that far and that high. And then it kind of was this moment of silence where it was kind of like, uh Oh, <laughs> is this the moment where we have to reconsider or, or possibly think about turning around? And so, yeah, I just kind of got shut down on a few of these thinner ice pitches that didn't seem, seem good enough to climb. And, um, so, you know, I had, I had a Scott, with me in hand. So, you know, it was time to unleash the Scottish winter climber um, onto the face as you do. Um, and so Ushtin went up and spotted this corner feature that we hadn't really considered because it was just kind of totally snow choked. Um, and he kind of traversed up and into it and started clearing it out. And lo and behold, he found this, this like really splitter crack along the side of it, probably the best gear we, we got the entire, the entire few days. Um, and so he was able to kind of work his way up this, this really steep corner, clearing out snow as he was going and, um, hanging off a few cams as he was kind of like working up and pulling, getting, getting the snow out. And so that kind of, you know, was the breakthrough moment where we, we regained our momentum in our heads and thought, okay, this thing's going to go. We're going to, we're going to find a way and we're going to make it to the top. It didn't sound like it was over then though. You had there was quite a lot of hard climbing still. <laughs> yeah, it surely wasn't. And so I, I mean, it was meant to be my, my, uh, it was my turn. So I duly took over after that. And I think I led one more long kind of steepish ice pitch. And then we were, we reached the rock band that we kind of knew in the back of our minds was going to be, was going to be tricky and we weren't sure, uh, how it was going to go. Um, and so I led a really long, just a full 60 meter pitch of what was this amazing steep ice runnel interspersed with these like two or three, um, steeper kind of slightly overhanging rock cruxes. And so we found that anywhere where the wall kind of got to totally vertical or slightly more, there wasn't any ice just, just because it was, you know, it was all this Alpine ice that had, that had formed over all these freeze thaw cycles and there just wasn't enough coverage in these sections. Um, and so that, that was turned out to be just this really amazing and challenging pitch that, you know, had some good gear at times, but at others ended up being quite run out and serious and technical. And for me really pushed, pushed myself physically and mentally kind of to the absolute limit in that moment, which was, a really intense and, and also fulfilling experience. Um, and I ended up, I used all the ice screws the last, you know, 10 meters of course was the crux. And, and I had tied off our last ice screw quite far below me and, and hammered into not so great pitons and kind of just hooed and hawed and decided to commit and go for it. Um, and made it through and yeah, we were really psyched in that moment. I was totally totally exhausted and, and had Ushtin take back over at that point to, to again, what we thought was going to be the end of, of the harder climbing, but it turned out he led this again, just another amazing kind of steep mixed pitch that, that then took us to the upper runnel. Was it, uh, was it still daylight at this point or were you well into the night? So I topped out that pitch kind of as we were getting into the night and I, I was so 
so mentally taxed. I told Ushtin, we can just stop here. Like I'm, <laughs> I, I could bivy here. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm totally toast. And, and he stepped up again and kind of kept things going. And, and we, I mean, it, there was nowhere really good to bivy. So it would have, we would have been chopping ice for hours. So it just kind of made sense at that point to just keep pushing up to the ridge where we thought we could, we could find a better spot that would take less time to, to excavate. You were describing uh, some of these uh, steep rock band, steep rock cruxes, the short bands so that you had to climb through. Is the rock any good or is it just terrible? Or? <laughs> it was frozen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If it wasn't frozen, it would be absolute junk. Right. But it was kind of, as it was, it was okay. Because it was kind of, I think uh, I've had this in the Rockies in the past on other big routes, like, if you've had a wet year, then things in the back of them are actually quite icy. So it really sticks it all together really well. So I think I think that definitely helped that like in all the cracks, there's lots of ice. Um, it's not so good for placing gear, but at least the rock's solid. How much climbing was there in all from from kind of where you roped up to to reach the Emperor Ridge? I mean, did you do did you count pitches? I think it's like climbing, I think around about 14 pitches or 15 pitches. And it's around about, it's probably close to a thousand meters of climbing. Yeah, almost a thousand meters, I'd say, of, of rope climbing. Right. Well, so this took you up to the Emperor Ridge. And I guess you'd been going for close to 20 hours. Yeah, I think, I think we'd been, I think we climbed for 19 hours or 20 hours. And, and, um, by the time we sort of decided where to bivy, we looked around at a few different spots and then we had to like clear a little platform and make a little wall and flatten it out a bit. And then obviously the endless task of um, melting snow for water, uh, we'd been awake for 23 hours. So what time was it by the time you sort of settled down to try to sleep? Um, I think just starting the next day. I think it was just after 12. Right. So a very long day to the ridge. Had Had you always planned? to bivy there yeah and i'd say that that had always been our plan whether it was a realistic plan or not we weren't sure <laughs> <laughs> um but we were again like quite happy that it it just how the conditions were like a lot of that still kind of steep terrain we were still able to move over it pretty fast because there were these amazing long pitches of neve and snice and and better ice quality and and it was funny because, as I mentioned, Ushtin led that kind of last long, steep, serious mix pitch. And I was I was following up and I could see, I was like belaying him and I could see his headlight like go into this gully that we thought was going to take us to the ridge. Thought, okay, he's made it. He's in the final ice gully. And then I looked I look down, I look back up and he's like questing up rock again on the side of the gully. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, I think, again, it was just one of these steep runnels that kind of, it, it steeped up enough in the choke point that, that there was no more ice and it was just, it was just bare. But I, I followed him up that pitch and I was yelling up to him. I was like, okay, are we like, are we finally at the ice? And he's like, no, there's this huge band of rock above us. So I was like, no, you're kidding me. No way. <laughs> he was just joking with me. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and there, and there was like still, you know, three or four long pitches of just like this spectacular ice ice runnel all the way up to the ridge it was just really really amazing climbing so you definitely had planned a bivy somewhere along the route what what did you carry 
for for bivy gear did you have kind of full kit or was it pretty minimal no we had uh we had full kit with us our thinking mainly behind that was so that we could continue to the summit um so we, you know we had a, a first light and some light sleeping bags and the stove and so you had a tent yeah 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 we took a first light and and uh ethan was i was slightly sort of like ah do we need a tent do we not need a tent and ethan was like i think we should take a tent man and ethan was totally right it really like really <laughs> saved us because it was so windy on the ridge that like yeah i don't know whether after a night like that whether you would continue want to continue to the summit and again on the summit it made a huge difference to just get out of the wind and have something over our heads and so yeah i think i think that was like a it was obviously made a slower climbing but i think it was a really good decision to sort of carry a proper system and in the morning you still had a long way to go to reach the summit uh what is the climbing like along that ridge and did you run into robson's infamous gargoyles yeah so it's it's um it's never that hard. It's it's just, but it's not. It's not just like climbing up an easy snow ridge. That's for sure. You sort of have to drop off the ridge at different points. So the first bit was the first section sort of was reasonably straightforward, and and we could still see quite well at that point. So so that was um, reasonably straightforward. But at one point, you have to find this ledge, which you traverse on like forty five degree ice for eight hundred meters. Um, and locating that ledge was was uh, really difficult because by the time we got near it, the cloud level had dropped and we could only see about 30 meters around us. Um, and Ethan led like that whole day and and he, yeah, he did a really good job actually like finding, eventually finding the ledge and then traversing um, all the way along the ledge. And, and the reason you do that is because like you say, there's all those infamous huge, rind up gargoyles on the ridge itself and so you avoid you managed to avoid all that rhyme well yeah pretty much uh ethan we went the wrong way a few times and ethan experienced some some interesting rhyme features i think <laughs> yeah yeah we avoided it for the most part i think that that kind of traverse across the upper west face was the way that barry blanchard and crew had kind of found their way to the summit after infinite patience and it's definitely a way that you can avoid a lot of that gnarly terrain along the ridgeline, which I think it would have been really pretty intense given the amount of rhyme that we found below kind of where the big gargoyles were. But yeah, I made a couple couple moves up to the ridge. Again, we were in this cloud that you, we couldn't really see very well. And so I I definitely had a few moments of of just like wind and terror and rhyme blowing around me and into my hood and face and everything. And I quickly retreated back to the west face as soon as I could when I found myself in those situations and and we made our way and kind of the crux of of doing all that traversing across the west face is finding the um the correct way to get up to the summit through all the gargoyles and so this was kind of looming in the back of our minds all day that we're we're endlessly traversing but we don't really know where we're supposed to go up and so Luckily, the clouds kind of started to break a little bit as we were kind of probably 700 meters out of the 800 meter traverse. And we were able to, to, to locate this really wild pitch that's called the tube, which you essentially climb this water ice three 
runnel up through these like hundred foot tall gargoyles that are like leaning in every direction. Wow. Um, and it, w- it leads you right to the summit, which was, which was really cool. Yeah, so you're obviously, you're covering a huge amount of ground. I mean, you mentioned an 800 meter traverse. Are you moving together the entire time or do you have to belay any sections? Um, yeah, we were, I mean, most of that, the ridge is kind of convoluted a bit at the beginning and we were belaying a little bit and simul climbing, but we were mostly moving together for, for that day. Um, a lot of times that traverse is all snow and protection can be quite hard, but in the condition we found it, I mean, I was leading across and was able to pretty much get an ice screw in anywhere I wanted to. So was, was trying to place a little bit of gear and kind of balancing that between climbing these long pitches and trying to be efficient and move across it. Um, but we were mostly climbing together and we, so neither of us had really stopped at all that entire day since, since we were doing that. And Ushtin mentioned that I was kind of ahead the entire day, but since the style that we were climbing in, it didn't really make a difference. (laughs) Well, other than root finding, which obviously was key. Yeah. Uh, how long did it take to get from your bivy up to the summit? I think we were we were moving for about eleven hours that day. So another pretty um, big day. So yeah, another kind of big day, especially after the first. Right. And again, just kind of the key route finding at the end. I think it would have been a lot more co- complicated, and not really sure what we would have done if we hadn't been able to see right at the end there. Huh. Um, and we we kind of climbed this last wild ice runnel, and then you kind of stem your way up the final rhyme feature um, in this little kind of chimney and then you kind of like step onto the summit and the way that the clouds were we kind of popped right above the cloud layer as we were finishing that pitch and the sun was setting and the moon was rising on the east side of the mountain which was and it was a full moon so it was just like this really cool surreal experience after being on this kind of not super steep ground but nowhere near flat ground all day to finally be like on this quite large and and big flat summit plateau that's fantastic you know it seems like i read about a fair number of people vivying on the summit is is that because people run out of time or is the descent really tricky and you don't want to do it at the end of the day or in the dark well i think we were just so tired it was like the obvious uh (laughs) the obvious thing to do and there's a flat spot right there and it was fairly sheltered. So it, it, there's like a little sort of hollow at the summit that you can sort of get out the wind in. So that that's like really key. And the descent, like you start, it's it's not like super hard or super complicated, but in the dark, I think it would be really hard to do because you sort of have to down climb this face with, and it's got all these big sort of rhyme features that you have to avoid and sort of end up on steep rolls if you don't go the right way. And also, I think that it really makes sense to actually do the, that in the early morning when it's not too hot because mm. um, it faces more south and and I wouldn't want to be there in the afternoon. Do you end up back at uh, Berg Lake or did you carry everything up and over from from your approach? Uh, yeah, so we descended. You end up down climbing the, the cane face and to the... Uh, call which I've forgotten the name of the Patterson Robson call, resplendent call resplendent call yeah there you go <laughs> um so yeah you sort of down climb the the cane face and then 
we had to do the double dyno over the Bergschund and jump over the Bergschund, which was fun. <laughs> and uh, and then you yeah you do some more traversing across the glacier, and then and then when you get to that call, you can take off your crampons and boots, and you you end up walking back to um, the other lake, which I've also forgot the name of. I'm not very good with names. Kinney Lake. Kinney Lake. There you go. Yeah. Do you end up walking out the same trail that you came in on, or is it uh, a completely different way out? Uh, it's completely separate apart from the first like four or five K of the walk-in. So, hmm. so yeah, when you get to Kinney Lake, it's like, it's, it's a few kilometers back to your car and the trail you came in. But for the most part, yeah, it's like completely separate and, and it feels really cool because you've, you really feel like you've gone up and over a big mountain. Yeah. So you, and so you're carrying everything with you the whole way. And like you say, you've done this incredible tour of this, uh, of this mountain. Yeah, we were yeah. Um, just thinking about it because, I mean, you you walk in to Berg Lake and you climb up the north side of the mountain and then hit the ridge and you traverse the upper west face to the summit and you kind of descend down the southeast ridge and then make your way down the eastern side back to the valley. So you you essentially, the way that we did it, we kind of climbed or touched every aspect of the mountain, which is a which I thought was a cool way to to think about it. Yeah, that's great. I, uh, I saw that there were three or four other new Alpine routes done in the first week of October in the Rockies. Uh, were these, uh, sort of exceptional conditions or is this part of the fall often a great time for Alpine climbing in that area? I think that the fall, yeah, this part of the fall is normally, normally good. The, the freezing level drops a little bit at night and compared to the summer and generally there's some stable weather that that allows you to go climbing but i think maybe conditions are quite good this year because of the snowy winter and the reasonably wet early summer does do you think that uh your route that you caught it in exceptional conditions or uh, maybe one reason that it hadn't been done or attempted before is maybe the conditions were unusual up there yeah i mean i don't I don't know. There were, there's always, it's never perfect. Right. I think that I hadn't climbed high enough on the face before to say whether it was exceptional or not. And I think John Walsh is the only person that's climbed the emperor face twice. Um, but like, for example, the freezing levels while we were there were near the top of the face or near the summit the entire time. So the, the whole bottom half of the face was, was not frozen at all. It was running water through all the gullies and, and there was very little snow coverage. Hmm. I wouldn't say that it was in all time exceptional conditions, but I think that I do feel like it was in good conditions. Yes. That's interesting. I mean, I think it, it seems almost like you would have seen, if you'd seen that water running, you might've said, wait, it's not in condition. We can't go. That sounds what like a sensible person. Would say. <laughs> <laughs> we, we very much, we very much almost didn't leave the tent. Um, huh. And I guess what kept us going is we knew that it had been cold and that we weren't going to get any sun and that the upper face looked quite well frozen. And we had got a bit of information from our friends, Alec and Quentin, who had, who had been out that week climbing, saying there was a very distinct freeze that they had experienced elsewhere in the range um, at about the elevation that we really wanted it to be frozen. And so all those factors. And again, we headed up that morning with the idea that, hey, we feel better about possibly heading up infinite patience because we know 
what the terrain's going to be like, and it's a bit less exposed or a lot less exposed. Um, and so we kind of built, we started to build confidence as we got a bit higher and we weren't really seeing anything that, that was alarming. And so kind of made the decision on the fly very much to, to kind of traverse into this new gully system. Mm-hmm. Anything else you'd like to say about the experience of being up there on that mountain? I think, uh, well, for at least one of you, it was the very first time you'd even seen the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I'd never been to Mount Robson before. I'd obviously heard lots about it, but yeah, I'd never seen it. And I hadn't seen it on the walk-in, like I said, cause it was so cloudy and I didn't see it properly until we drove away. Um, and you get a really good view from it, from the road. And it was really cool. Actually, it was like to see it like after you sort of climbed it, it was such a bizarre, bizarre experience, but it, it definitely is really cool because it's just a it's a it's a big mountain but and a really big experience and kind of really out there but it's like you know it's like just last week Ethan was like oh hey do you want to go climbing in a few days and I'm like yeah yeah okay cool sure you know I'm like drinking coffee at home and then a few days later you're kind of like strapped on this big mountain and feeling kind of out there yeah I second that I think it's it's really cool that we were able to have such a such a big and meaningful experience so close to home. You know, we just got in the car and, and drove over there. Um, and also just having been out there for, you know, four days total and just the, the way that we had climbed and, as we mentioned, going up and over and down the other side, it just really felt like this, this really large and deep experience um, and kind of one of the more meaningful and big outings that I've felt that I've had in the mountains anywhere, um, let alone kind of in the backyard. I really like something that Ustin posted on Instagram shortly after the first descent of this route, which they called running in the shadows. I got my first full view of the mountain as we drove away. The chain by Fleetwood Mac was playing full blast in the truck as I stuck my head out of the window to look back skyward at the mountain, towering above the road. I turned back around as the speakers blasted. Chain, keep us together, running in the shadow. Ethan and I danced and sang like crazy in our seats as the mountain drifted away in the mirror. Thanks to Ustin and Ethan and to the great Barry Blanchard for sharing their stories. And thanks also to Hilleberg the Tentmaker for making this show possible. Whether you're setting up advanced base below a Himalayan face or battening down the hatches for a Patagonian storm, Hilleberg's tents offer bomb-proof protection.